Good morning, everyone. This is becoming quite a venture for us as we've arrived at the sixth message out of eight on our journey of understanding how to break the rules. We're describing the six man-made rules hindering us from a healthy relationship with God and with others. One thing I find interesting, Dan, is our awareness of these rules has a way of sharpening the way we understand what the Bible says about relationships and God and life. For example, let's look at the story of David and Goliath. Most everyone is familiar with this story in 1 Samuel 17. You've got a 10-foot tall giant named Goliath on a hill. He's very intimidating, definitely an evil bully. Then you have David who comes on the scene, a shepherd, and he asks, what's, what's happening, guys? When Eliab, David's older brother, uh, heard him speaking with the men around him, he burns with anger at him and asks, why have you come down here? You're just a conceited little brat. Why don't you go back to your sheep in the desert? David says, now what have I done? Can I even speak? Can I even talk? So there's the don't talk, don't feel, don't trust rules, immediately fully enforced by the oldest brother. David gets brought before King Saul and breaks all the rules, saying to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul pushes back with dialogue. You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy. And Goliath has been fighting, has been a fighting man from his youth. David responds, but you should have seen what that lion and bear looked like after they tried to attack one of my sheep, and Goliath will look exactly like him. You watch. And Saul said, okay, go for it. I trust you. I respect the way you think. Go. The Lord bless you. Be safe. You know how the story concludes, and the rest is history. Breaking these man-made rules is not for sissies. It takes courage and resolve to talk, to feel, to earn trust, to extend trust, to think through the true from the false. So this brings us to the rule, don't choose. The don't choose rule shows up in several ways. If you were ever told you have no choice, you are being told don't choose. Just do what I tell you. Usually there's no conversation about options. Research shows that we adults uh, make hundreds of choices every day, and so do our children. Some choices we make out of habit, but they're still a choice. Some choices we make because others have made them for us, and that's okay, but they're still choices we've made. How many times have you used the words, I can't? Those two words can imply that you believe you don't have a choice. The two words, I won't, imply that you believe you do have a choice and you're fully aware of that choice and you're making a choice. So from the first chapter of Genesis to the last chapter of Revelation, God is a volitional being who chooses. When he creates Adam, he makes Adam in his image. So God creates Adam to be a volitional being who chooses, just like him. And down through the ages, God creates, created every one of us to be volitional beings who choose who make choices about everything. However, our choices are heavily influenced by the authorities around us, whether our families, our work environment, or our churches. Dan, can you help us think through a authority and choice? Sure. Let me draw a contrast between healthy 
an unhealthy authority. And I'm gonna dive into a PowerPoint here, so let's look. Okay, let's do a comparison between being able to choose and not to choose. So let's start with choosing. In this paradigm, there is a respect for free will for people. We give them the opportunity to choose because we believe that is an inherent gift from God. The authority, in this case, is confident enough not to use force, but to let them make their choices. This also then means this person in authority will allow natural consequences to be the main teacher. And when the person experiences the results of poor choices, they offer grace and forgiveness. Now, that's one environment. The opposite environment of that would be where, with authority, there is no option really to choose. And in this scenario, there's a disrespect for personhood, believing that other people need to bow to this authority. They also uh, have a fear of loss of control, and that's really what underlies these um, leaders. And so what they do then is exert control through enforced submission. And loyalty and without question is considered a fundamental. If a person does not comply, then there's punishment. And with that, in increased control. And that's a very toxic environment. And you can see how the ability for people to have free choice in this environment is very difficult. Now, this is not uh, just in current days, but let's look at Jesus' day. What was it like in Jesus' day? There were the two ways of looking at this in his day as well. And we're going to start with how Jesus did it. We find that with him, he was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It was intended to be a pejorative against him, but this was revealing how Jesus was openly welcoming of everybody, even those who were considered marginal or not desirable. And we find that Jesus' method of teaching was gentle and he focused on the hearts of people. And he did not force his teaching. He allowed people to accept or reject. He did not try to make any kind of coercion involved. And when people did come to him, he offered grace and forgiveness. Now contrast that with the other paradigm in Jesus' day, and that was the Pharisees. And these were the religious people of the day, the fundamentalists of the day. And uh, the, in this crowd, unclean people and sinners were not welcomed. They had to keep themselves clean. In fact, the word Pharisee means separated. And they wore on their head a little plaque that said, holiness unto the Lord, we will be separate from those who are unclean. And they were dogmatic teachers, and they focused on behaviors and external controls. And they judged people who did not keep the rules. In fact, they punished lawbreakers, and the ultimate punishment was expelling them from the synagogue or reporting them to the authorities. So we see a real contrast here between uh, Jesus' way of giving people choice and the um, Pharisees' way of not allowing choice, but trying to enforce their way. Jesus used interesting short stories as a way of teaching. 
And he used common things like a farmer sowing his seed. So I'm going to give you a modern day short story. This is a short video about chickens. Kevin, my neighbor, and he told me that they know how to root, they know how to hypnotize a rooster. Ready? So you hold him like this. Watch, watch Tooster's body. Watch this. Watch his body. Oh my gosh. Watch. He's totally fixated on the line. Watch. He's asleep. This is just like when they're roosting. How long will he stay like that? A few minutes. Sometimes they'll stand up and stare at it and then lay down on the If we erase the line, will he wake up? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure either. Is he gonna peck me? Oh my gosh, if you erase the line. <laughs> <laughs> Don't erase the line! That is the funniest video I have seen of a chicken in my whole life. What a funny story. And you know, Jesus told stories and some of them were funny and he used them to make a point. So the point with this story is that this is a depiction, one depiction of what unhealthy authority could look like. They take and control you and they make you focus on the line, focus on the rules. And if we do that, we become passive, we stop thinking, and we don't choose, and we just end up looking at the rules. But you know, that authority is, is not real. All you have to do is erase the rules, and people come alive, just like the rooster. <laughs> so the bottom line for some of these folks that, that wanna have this kind of controlling leadership is, don't erase the lines, like don't, Get rid of the rules because that's the way you control people. Hmm. Quite a story. Hmm. Well, let's take a glance at one of the shortest books of the Bible, 3rd John. It's a little postcard written by Pastor John. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John shows us that God and love are inseparable. However, there are always people around who don't want to be pinned down to the God that Jesus reveals or to the love Jesus reveals. They wanna make up their own idea of God and make up their own style of love. John was pastor to a church disrupted by some of these people. He begins his postcard by writing how he feels about Gaius in verses one to eight. Turn your Bibles and scan the short letter with me. He warmly greets, greets Gaius, thankful for wonderful men like him who love the truth and the church. But then Pastor John changes his entire tone and shares how he feels about another person in the church named Diotrephes in verse 9. And notice the major control issues this man had in the church there. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, other translations say, who loves to be in charge, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. So there we have it, black and white. Some folks are into power grabbing, others are into power gifting. It couldn't be more clear what pleases God. Well, you know, Dan, uh, if a person grows up in that kind of environment, it does something deeply disturbing in the psyche and the emotions and heart of people who live under that. Now, 
your story indicates that you lived under something like that. And uh, what did you, what can you tell us about this and what did you learn? Well, God wants us to be more aware of our choices ahead of just drifting through life being unaware. People who are unaware of their choices are very susceptible to addictions. Addictions have a way of sapping us of our volition, of our awareness and our capacity to choose. Where do addictions come from? We have a good clue in Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. God had told Adam to not touch a certain tree. That tree symbolized God's lordship over Adam. The crafty serpent asked Eve, did God actually say don't eat of that tree? Eve said, yes, he did, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent was suggesting that God was withholding things from her that she truly needed and would benefit from. It's almost like the serpent was defining sin as prohibition against fun. But the book of Romans describes sin as anything but fun or beneficial. Sin has devastating consequences. It enslaves people. Slaves have no choice. Sin has a way of taking away our choice and our awareness of choice. The Apostle Paul describes in stark terms the havoc sin causes. It darkens our hearts, Romans 1.21. It causes us to believe, behave in ways that are ugly, Romans 1.29-31. It leads to death, Romans 8.7-8. It distorts all our relationships, Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Sin is no laughing matter. It pervades the world in subtle yet powerful ways. And none of us is immune to sin. We all have fallen short. Years ago, I took a course from Canada's most certified Canadian, uh, Christian addictions recovery specialist. It jarred me when he made the statement in the first 10 minutes of the first class that if we were breathing, we were addicted. What is addiction? How does an addiction work and where does let's choose fit in? Turn over to Romans chapter seven. The apostle Paul had just described sin in chapter six. In chapter seven, he's willing to take a good, long, hard look at his deepest, darkest inner life what he saw there was troubling, but true. He was a slave to sin. Let's start with verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have this desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul was not just having a bad day when he wrote that. He was not merely suffering from low self-esteem or feelings of inadequacy. He was looking in the mirror and writing a realistic assessment of himself. He was measuring himself against the holy expectations that God has for all of us, what the Book of Romans calls the law. 
And the more Paul became aware of what God wanted, the more aware he became of his inability in his own strength to live as God wanted. Well, I began walking this very path about 30 years ago after I hit a wall, which I described in my story. In our culture today, when we think of addictions, we typically think of alcohol or drugs or pornography. I wasn't into any of these three, but I certainly was into a number of other behaviors that I excused by saying, that's just the way I am, or that's the way God made me. Here's how it worked for me. God wired me with a warm and friendly personality, like mom's. I enjoy being around people. I like being liked. According to Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God also created me, created all of us, with eternity in our hearts. So we are hardwired to want to live forever. We have a vacuum in our hearts that only God can fill because only he can love us with no conditions. So life happens and there's an emotional trigger telling me stress just happened. I need to be nice or nicer. If I'll just be nice, everything will be okay. It's the easiest thing in the world to overuse a strength. But when we depend more on our strengths than on God, our strengths actually become our weakness. And when my pleasing personality became the center of my life in the form of compulsive Mr. Nice, I lost all sense that I was making constant choices to rely on the alcohol of Mr. Nice. Repeatedly for years, I lived down this cycle with typically, which typically began with the emotional trigger of some incident causing stress. Then came a craving for peace and tranquility, the craving for the tension of the moment to disappear. Then there would be a little ritual, such as me apologizing or me taking responsibility for something that may not have been my responsibility at all. Then I would depend on my Mr. Nice persona to try to mend the fence or try to bring back that sense that everything really was okay. Then inevitably, I would feel guilty and embarrassed that the tension in the room ever happened in the first place. Then after a lull, a space of time, there would be another emotional trigger and the cycle would repeat itself. Next week, when we talk about let's change, I'll explain in more detail what it took for me to change. But I can say that once I recognized how I had become a slave to the God of Mr. Nice, once I recognized how this addiction had stolen my life away, where I was not free to be real, I was not free to make choices I needed to make, my life began to turn a corner. In our third year marriage, someone disrespected me. My wife pointed this out to me in a conversation, asking the question, honey, what are you gonna do when this person walks all over you and you become the doormat? I replied, it'll be okay because I'm sure I can outnice him. She replied with four timely words of wisdom. Good luck with that. The very next year, I hit a wall when my Mr. Nice addiction completely failed me. Two years later, I wrote a 10-page paper on how this Mr. Nice addiction had completely failed me. I concluded my paper in a fresh gush of emotion and made the choice to send that Mr. Nice false god to the pit. For the first time ever, I was free to speak the words of truth to someone who was cursing at his wife the, the very next day. And I was surprised that he didn't hit me back. 
for the first time ever, I was willing to risk being seen as not very nice. Over the decades since, I've tried to peel back the layers of that addiction and live in the freedom to choose when it's appropriate for me to be gracious and when it's appropriate for me to address foolishness. I continue to discover how relationship with Jesus Christ is truly the only solution to my compulsion to rely on myself to make life work. Only relationship with Jesus can fill the emptiness of our hearts and help us to live free from slavery. Well, thank you, Dan. That's uh, interesting insights you've learned over the years. Now, I'd like to show you some alternative ways of seeing life. So I'll show you another diagram now. Let's use a diagram to help us understand how experience shapes us and where our choice comes into the matter. Something happens to us. We don't have much choice as to whether something happens. But when something does come into our life experience, the first thing we do is interpret it. And it, out of the interpretation, we form a belief. And we use a, those beliefs to make our choices, which tends then to bring in certain experiences again. Now, let's just slow that down and think about it in more detail. How does this happen? Well, an experience happens, and the first thing that comes to mind is your thought, what happened? And then, why did that happen? And what does that mean? And these thoughts come to us, folks, in nanoseconds. But out of that brief interpretation, we form a belief. What have I learned? And what does this mean going forward? In fact, these here, as a unit, are we would call a story, an experience that has an interpretation linked with it. And when interpretation uh, results in a belief, it's right here in beliefs that we get strong emotions. When the emotions are centered around a belief, they make them stronger. And it's out of these stories that we interpret life. Now, notice though, about this diagram here, it's not actually the experience that changes us. Watch this. It's the interpretation that shapes us. So what's really important is how we interpret. But notice that there are several interpretation voices that come to us. There's other people who will tell us how to think about this experience. And they will tell us what to do to interpret. We also know that the Holy Spirit will speak to us in the midst of our interpreting, if we're listening for him. But whenever there's the Holy Spirit, that also means there is the possibility of the voice of the enemy. We have to learn how to discern the difference between someone else's opinion, God's gentle speaking, and Satan's shout of, act, of uh, accusation. But you'll notice that we do have a choice which voice we're going to listen to. In this experience of a narrative, we could not control the experience, it happened. We do have control over the interpretation and consequently, we have a control over what beliefs we come out of it. And then we have a choice, what beliefs we're gonna to use to make our future choices. So you can see folks that the power of choice is crucially important for our development and our living in the life that God intended for us. Thank you, Dan. Is there some way that the let's choose model 
can help us sort through our emotions and thinking? James, the half-brother of Jesus and the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church, comments on this very question. James 1, verses 2 and 4. Count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Choice is very connected. Every event that happens in our lives triggers some emotion, and that emotion comes to the filter we could refer to as evaluation. It's like this, event plus evaluation equals emotion. Every emotion we feel is determined in part by what we think about that event, what we believe about it. It may take time for us to realize what God's purpose is in certain events, but he is such a big God, there's no event that escapes his ability to transcend that event and bring good out of it. We've talked this morning about authority, about addictions, and we've certainly arrived at an alternative. The culture all around us sends us the message, do this, choose this, here's why you should do this. It'll make you feel happy. Our culture reminds us daily we should strive to be the guy at the top of the totem pole. It's all about top down. We know what's best for you, just submit. Do what we tell you, right now. God offers a radically different alternative to the message of the culture all around us. Jesus told his disciples, don't lord your authority over people. Learn the posture of a servant. It's so easy to read certain scripture with our preconceived ideas. Scripture talks about authority and submission in relationships, one of these being marriage. Around our world, women submitting to men often involves women living by the rules of don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, don't think, and don't choose. When I was in kindergarten, our pastor never let a Sunday morning go by without quoting Ephesians 5-2 every single Sunday. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. He never quoted verse 21 just prior to that, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, regardless of your gender. He never once explained that when King Lemuel penned the Hebrew acrostic poem of Proverbs 31, when he penned verse 10 and wrote, who can find a virtuous woman? The Hebrew word he used for our English word virtuous meant warrior. For who can find a warrior woman? For her worth is far above rubies. Just what kind of warrior was he referring to? I can tell you, he was referring to the kind of warrior the Apostle Paul described, describes in Ephesians 6. God wants women to be strong enough to go to war against anything that will harm themselves or their families or friends. Amen. Foolishness deserves to be resisted and evil deserves to be defeated. And God calls us husbands to be the head of our homes. What's this look like functionally? This means God gave us husbands the primary responsibility to create the kind of environment in our homes where love has the best chance to grow. This, friends, is God's alternative. And we get to choose to walk in the world's way of bondage and despair or walk in God's way of freedom, relational health, and strength.
you know, this matter of choice has huge implications for marriages, like you just described, for businesses, and for churches as well. Now, let me show you two contrasting pictures of church culture today. In one church culture, choice is allowed. And this is where there's a genuine welcome of everybody. And acceptance is not dependent upon behaviors or appearance. There's open discussion of all topics, and there's compassion and grace for all who stumble. In these environments, in this kind of a church, people are able to belong and participate right away. Over time, they learn to believe, and then they find their behaviors begin to align with their faith. Well, contrast that with churches where choice is really not allowed. In these settings, some people don't feel welcome. And there are man-made standards that are enforced. And it'll be external things like hair or uh, dress style. Um, different opinions are not allowed in these kinds of churches. You have to all think the same. And those who don't comply are shunned. The shunning can just be emotional or it can be actual where they announce a shunning thing. In these kinds of environments, the behavior is what's first. And then you have to believe right before you can belong. And folks, these are very contrasting models of what it's like to be in a church. And we want to put before you a choice between these two. In fact, in the book of Joshua, there is one verse there that really sets this into a beautiful contrast. The people of Israel are just about to go into the promised land. This is a land. Remember, that's flowing with milk and honey. They want to be in this land. And Joshua says, before you go here, you have to understand you have a choice. And he says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether it's the gods, and he names the culture and the time, the gods of your culture, or for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And that choice is still there for us today. There are false gods in this culture and in our time that want to shut people down they want to control people and then there's the true living god who offers his ways and his truth that gives the land of milk and honey for those who are willing to step into god's ways and to god's ways of doing things and so i'd like to have a word of prayer here as we end this time with you heavenly father we thank you that you have put before us life and death and you've given us the choice and you've said you can choose one or the other but you urge us to pick the truth and pick life and lord we thank you for this amazing gift that you've given us the gift of choice the power of choice and the respect that you show us in that and lord we want to exercise that choice to serve you and to choose life and we praise you, Lord, that you have offered it to us freely. And for any who will believe, there is the option of life eternal. And we thank you for your gift, Jesus. Amen. Amen.